Whether on the boat, on the river, or in the woods, Yeti products are by our side. There are many innovative first-class companies in the outdoor market today, but none more so than Yeti. In 2006, they took the industry by storm when they produced their first roto-molded cooler that was reliable and built for the wild. 17 years later, with a multitude of new products, they continue to raise the bar and be the gold standard for all outdoor brands. We couldn't be more proud to have them as a Millhouse sponsor and a family member. Papas Pilar is a spirit that embodies adventure. Named after the late great Ernest Hemingway and his boat, the Pilar, the name says it all. This ultra-premium blended rum is hand-selected from around the Caribbean and blended by master blender Ron Call. After a long day on the water, when the sun is descending the sky, end on a good note with Pilar by your side. Go support them at papaspilar.com or a liquor store near you. For 27 years, Kyle Holt has been the head fishing guide for Taylor Creek Fly Shop in Basalt, Colorado. He's been a close friend for many moons and was our guide for Jared Raskob and I on the TV show Silver Kings. He is well versed in the salt and has hosted people fishing throughout the world. And just as important, if not more, he's president of the Roaring Fork Guide Alliance, which we'll cover in today's podcast, along with his great life as a trout guide. We hope you enjoy. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged them both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. (laughs) There's something fishy going on here. All right, we're ready to go. All right, um, just before you hit that red button, we're doing a sound check, and Nikki says, Kyle, say Andy Mill has no idea how to fly fish. I got to gotta loosen up a little bit. He looks never, nervous. Go there's on. There's never gotta... a let up. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, Kyle, it's, it's, it's great to have you. Um, we've done so many interviews with guys out of the salt, uh, Florida. Uh, but I think... It's just obvious, and I think it's important to get the Western guys in um, and their stories. Fly fishing is is everywhere. And growing up in the Aspen Valley since 1960, this is, these are my roots. And you've been a guide for a long, long time. 
you know, out of Taylor Creek down in, in Basalt. And I think that hub between the Roaring Fork River and the Frying Pan is one of the greatest fly fishing destinations in the world. The Frying Pan River is world class. The Roaring Fork, the same thing. How, when did you get here and how did you get become, to become one of the best guides in the valley? And you rode Jared Raskob and I on, uh, you know, down the river uh, for the Silver King show. What a treat that was. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. That was, uh, and if Jared wouldn't have broke that big brown off, we'd have had an even better show. <laughs> Did you hear that, Jared? <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say, <laughs> got to rub it in. Go, Jared, go. Well, he's used to pulling on a 150-pound fish and, well, and pushing a 275-pound uh, boat. And I'm used to keeping people 20 feet off the bank, and I had to keep in the middle of the river with you guys because those casts weren't getting any shorter. <laughs> <laughs> Do you catch more fish when you can, when you can cast, cast further? Uh, I think, yes, of course, and more accurately, <clears throat> just kind of all of the above. You have options if you can cast a little bit further. Absolutely. Well, let's go back to the original question. Okay. When did you get to this, this valley? So I moved to Colorado in 1983 from Illinois um, with 800 bucks in my pocket, and uh, I just started fishing a lot. And I started fishing all around the Front Range, the South Platte, uh, the North Platte, all those areas over there. And then I wanted to expand, and so I went to the Roaring Fork Valley because I heard about the frying pan. And I always wanted to go up the frying pan. So in 1983, late 1983, I went up there for the first time and was really blown away just by driving up the river. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful scenic drives that you can ever do. I probably went off the road four or five times looking down at the river, you know, at the holes and the runs yeah, sure. and, and the bugs coming off and, and all that stuff. And and I had gone into uh, frying pan anglers at the time. and Roy Palm? Roy Palm. Yeah. When he was in the barbershop. Wow. That's and like a so that room. Bar that barbershop in the corner that's still there? Yes. Yeah, that was Roy's shop, his no first way. shop. Yeah. Yep. I didn't shop. know that. Wow. And um, he would stand in there and tie flies, and he would literally fill his bins with his own flies. And Rest in peace, Roy. Yeah. One of the great human beings one of all One of the time. best ever. Yeah. And um, I would take Roy's mice shrimp up there to the dam and, and just – was in awe of those fish that were up there at the time. And they were pretty tricky. I mean, they have always been fairly technical, but there were mice of shrimp coming out, you know. Of the spillway. Of the spillway. And they would make it downriver as far as a half mile to a mile, depending on the flow of the river, of course. <clears throat> um, but the fish would get to obscene proportions sometimes. You know, you'd catch an 18-inch fish with an 18-inch girth. And... Is that yeah. right? Yeah, there's a couple in the shop if you're ever in there, look around. I looked at those. Del Canty, I think, mounted those, didn't he? I think Del mounted, especially yeah. that big one that they found. Yeah, I thought, it, I used to fish Alaska with Del. We used to go up there and fish his belly boats uh, mm -hmm. in the Telechilitna River. So I got to know Del quite well, and he was obviously a taxidermist. And there was always, they were always mentioning about those fish being his. I was wondering, how, how accurate were those? And you're saying they're they were very accurate. Well, that you know that great big one that's in the shop. It's yeah. like it, the I think a game warden found that fish floating dead in the in the toilet bowl up there, and it weighed 26 pounds, and it basically choked to death on mice's shrimp. It, they were in his gills. They were in his throat. Oh my gosh! That was the story I've heard anyway. 
Wow. Um, and that's a good story. Well, another friend of mine found about a 10 pound brown in the bridge pool dead that was definitely choked on mice shrimp. That's amazing. And so I fell in love with the frying pan and then I would come up on the weekends and I'd camp up at the dam and, and just fell in love with that. What did you do for work before you became a guide? I was in the retail business, just trying to make enough money to go fishing on the weekend. Did you hate it? Uh, you know, I didn't hate it because I liked the interaction with people. Um, I tried not to hate my job because it was better if you didn't. Yeah, Um, for sure. And I had good hours. I worked early in the morning till mid afternoon and I could actually get to a river after work and do some fishing. So that was a good, and I made enough money to, to support my habit and, um, bought my first good fly rod, uh, a Sage, I think RPL from, I think a shop where your father used to work at Angler's All. Angler's All. Yep. That's before you started throwing hardies, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, um, and so I just started coming up here a lot to the valley and kind of fell in love with it. And then I found the Roaring Fork. So I go into frying, uh, Roaring Fork Anglers one day and, and I said, where's a good spot to fish the Roaring Fork? And um, I said, well, over in the back of the Safeway parking lot, there's some fishermen's parking there. You go there and just walk down the hill and there's all kinds of good water. I'm like, you know, I'm in a little town that's got a world-class river running through it. And the grocery store has fishermen's parking. And I can walk down the river and catch all these beautiful fish. I'm like, I'm sold. Paradise this is yep. where I want to live. You know, it's uh, very similar. I mean, my dad grew up. I mean, he didn't grow up here. He was an adult when we moved here. But we both started fishing at the same time and he kind of fell out of it. And then uh, he ended up in Denver, and he came up, and I taught him to, to nymphish, you know, um, effectively. He started learning how to catch fish. Within three months, he quit his job, got a job at Anglers All in Denver, and became a fishing bum at the age of, like, 66. <laughs> would, he, would he just tie flies, or did he work retail there? No, he said he was a fly tire. But he, he, the tie, fly, he tied he would eggs tie, and he would sand worms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> And, oh my god it was just like dad these are not flies these are worms and eggs i mean um some of these purest dry fly fishermen would just laugh at that because i think a real fly tire can really tie these great beautiful you know dry flies uh, I, I can't even imagine trying to do that anymore but anyway like you you wanted to be a fisherman yep. and you, you made a life out of it when did you make that 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 when did you cross that bridge to become a guide well, I moved to the Valley in 1990, <clears throat> and I worked at a little grocery store up there in Snowmass Village, up by the post office, and that was, you know, to pay the bills and to live in this valley. And I bought a house in Glenwood on the river, right on the Roaring Fork, and I would work, I was an evening manager up there, and during the winter, I'd get, you know, a bunch of ski days in, 60, 70 days of skiing in, and I could also do some part-time guiding as it turned out my first guide job though was i went into roy's shop in the barber shop and just told him hey i just moved here i'm you know so happy that i can just you know i can fish anytime i want for an hour or 30 minutes or two hours or he goes well you ever thought about doing some guiding i'm like no i've never thought about it but i'd sure be you know up for trying it 
he said, well, I can use some part-time guides in the summertime. And so my first guide job was with Roy Palm and, uh, Rob Baxter worked there. He was one of the guides there. And also he was a ski patrol mud up here in Aspen and yep. fished in the summer, guided in the summer. And an absolute incredible dry fly fisherman. He would, I don't think Rob ever caught a fish on a nymph. I don't think that ever happened. And I don't think he ever wanted to. He would literally sit on the riverbank and wait for a fish to rise while me and my buddy were out there slamming on San Juan worms and Prince nymphs, you know? Yeah. And another great human being, Rob Baxter, just mentioned he was a ski patrolman here in Aspen. I did a a TV show with him a long time ago. Uh, When I had the show, we were, you know, traveling around getting these guys and he took me, I'd never fished the Colorado before. And we went down and we fished the banks of the I-70 roaring right there. And we Mm -hmm. were down there by the boulders right at the bank. And all of a sudden here, the head's coming up started sipping little blue winged olives and stuff but uh you, you never got stuck into the the dry fly purest thing you just like i just like to catch fish too much <laughs> no me too <laughs> i mean i i you know i've done a lot of saltwater fishing and stuff too and there's even times there where it's like okay we absolutely cannot fly fish today let's catch some fish some other way right i just love to fish and, love to catch fish. and i just love to catch fish i just love to fish yeah catching is a byproduct. So, so that, yeah, that, that first year of guiding, did you know, did it click like, this is what I want to do the rest of my life? Or was it just, I'm going to try this out for the summer? It, I had to get into it a little bit at yeah. first. So my very first guide trip was with the U.S. ambassador from Australia. How guy. nervous were you? So I was pretty nervous, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to take this guy out where I just caught 30 fish yesterday. <laughs> We went out there and caught 30 fish, and I was like, okay, that was pretty easy. I, I can do like, this. I kind of like that. And he handed you money, so well, that's even better. And so as that summer progressed, and I worked with a lot of really good guys at that shop. Um, Baxter was such a great mentor, um, and so was Roy. And uh, and believe it or not, Chuck Fothergill actually worked there that summer as well. Oh, wow. What a superstar. He taught me, as I mentioned before on some of these podcasts, he taught me how to tie flies when I was 12 years old, along with the Wright brothers when Phil Wright owned the country store. We all learned it together. I mean, so it was just cool to just, you know, get to know him a little bit. Yeah. Realize what an icon he was of this valley. Mm -hmm. And I think he had the first fly shop. Is that... Is that right? Father Gills. Father yep. Gills. Yep. And then he was uh, memorialized with a big rock down there at Jaffe Park. You know, Father Gill, you know, uh-huh. like the father of of the Roaring Fork fishery type of something, whatever. Right. But he was really very much an icon because this is all before, you know, the movie came out, River Runs Through It. Uh, not very many people were on that river, but yep. just a handful. And, um, and I can only imagine, I mean, I, can't, I do I remember because I was like, I learned when I was like seven, eight years old, you know, and learned how to tie flies a little bit after that. But that was uh, that was a playground for all of us. No one was fishing. <laughs> no, yeah, I was, was going to ask in the early '90s when you first started guiding. You go up the pan. Was there just no one on the river? I mean, or there was a couple people, and you can pick and choose your spots. There was there were people, you know, but you could pick and choose your spots more. Um, you knew who the guides were, like you knew who the Taylor Creek guides were, John High, and some of those, you know famous guys, Bart Chandler and all those guys and, and, uh, Kelly Klein and, and we all friendly or was there a little rivalry at all? You know, I, I'm the kind of guy that stayed, I tried to stay in the background. And if I knew, 
um, this guide's car or something, I would just not go there. Right. You know, I'd try to find ever. My... Would you go there the next day? Well, yeah, if he wasn't there. So you'd poach <laughs> that. So you like on the ocean and the keys, you poach spots. From yeah, each but other? I think well, I think the river's different. I'm just asking. No, it's it, it, because it, the next day that guy could go there. Say, Damn it, he's in my spot. I like to fish there. It's got to be a lot of similar. Well, Kyle can speak on that, but I think it's different. It is and it isn't. Um, you know, I know the situation in the Keys. I've fished down there quite a bit. And um, it is a little bit different, I believe. Um, our fish are always there, right? Right. We don't have a, Our tide goes one way, right? It never changes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and our fish are there, regardless of whether they're feeding, not feeding. They're always there. So there's a big there's a little bit of a difference there. I would think it would be even more pronounced because the fish are always there. And if you really like to fish there, it's like, I got to get my guides on the water earlier so I can get my spot. But you mostly, uh, you have a raft. And now you row mostly, right? A raft and a drift boat, yeah. So you don't wade fish that very much anymore? Um, no, you know, that's not. That's a lie because I see you all the time on the frying pan in the winter months when I'm winter, struggling. Yeah. As he's fishing <laughs> alone. The motherfucker, I look back and Kyle's got his net out every 10 seconds netting a fish. Well, you know, it's experience. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, you're, years me of it. you're a young guide. He's an elderly guide. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm happy to share with you anytime, Nikki. No, well, that's too kind. No, but seriously, I mean, you're, I know you drift, you, you, uh, you float a lot, but you're as deadly on the pan as anybody. Here's a, here, let me ask both of you guys. If you become a guy, do you lose, lose a little of that interest and that innovative desire to always fish on your own and get better? Or do um, you get a little bit burned out and you don't want to fish on days off? I guess I have a, I have a kind of a weird way of answering that. Um, I've always believed that, especially when I became a guide where I was doing 250 plus a year, I didn't think it was right for me to go out on that same water and beat those fish up on my day off. Mm -hmm. If I go out, I, I tell this story to people. It's like my wife likes to row the boat. So I'll go out and if the dry fly fishing is really good, I'll actually smash my hook down. And I'll just get the bite, pull it out. Fish is still there. I just got a nice rise on a dry fly, but I didn't have to catch him or stress him or anything. And the next day, my guy throws his fly in that spot. I know that fish is there. He's gonna, you know, you maybe catch him. Yeah. Might still be there. But um, let, let me tell you, I'm the same way. Uh, I really do do not like catching fish on the fork anymore. Jay Scott rode me last year, and I said, Jay, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't want to catch any fish. You know, I'm just going to dry fly fish, and I'm not going to set the hook. By accident, you'll catch a couple unless, mm-hmm. you, unless you bend the, the hook all the way down. But we just counted bites, and you get a bite, and you can get it right back in there. But I felt like these fish, how many more trout do I need to catch, having done this since, you know, 1960? And I feel badly for the fish because they're flopping. They're trying to get off, and... I, you know, it's just, I, I feel like it's not, I, it's, I, it's okay just to like see the bite like you. Well, I get to see the bite all the time from the rower seat, right? And standing behind people. I mean, I, I, I fish vicariously through my customers. Right. So, but there's the question, but you still like to fish on your own. even. When I still love working. to fish. And one of the, one of the things that a lot of the guides here like to do is carp fish. We like on our days off, we got some sloughs and some little lakes and stuff around and, 
and they're pretty they're a pretty good quarry you know right uh, they fight well they fight well yes. they're very picky sometimes they're very spooky some days they're just absolute assholes they won't they won't eat anything. Right. And other days, they'll tail like a bonefish. Right. I was going to say, and that's probably the closest thing you we get around here to, to saltwater salt fly yep. fishing because it's all sight fishing. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. We were going to Steamboat a couple of days ago um, for a podcast, and we see a, a maverick in a yard at, in Oak Creek. And Nikki was saying, I wonder, we were wondering if there, he's a carp fisherman or if he's a Keys guide also. And fishes down. In yeah, the it was keys. very bizarre. We were just driving down. We saw a maverick. Just I think right. I know whose boat that is. Yeah, yeah. He's a sales rep, um, and he carp fishes out of his. Out of his and he also head. pike fishes out of it. I know. I wanted to go over and knock on his door. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I wanted to get, know what he was doing. It was. Um, I was telling Nikki recently. We were. I was up on um, Henry's Fork one time, and it was my <laughs> infancy of, of trout fishing, and below me is this black man killing it. I mean, he's got, he's catching fish one right after the other. And finally I had it and I just walked over and started unzipping his pockets <laughs> and looking at stuff. You know, was, I didn't even know if I said, Hey, what's happening? Can I look in your, in your vest? I, that's, that's all I remember. I don't, he was very nice, but I just remembered what an idiot I was <laughs> on that particular day. It's just like driving by that skiff. I want to know what they're doing. I want right. to know what they know. Yep. And it, to answer your question yeah i still really love to fish um i love to go down the river i like to be out there i love my customers you know i love to uh, i guess my my favorite thing is teaching kids kids that really want to learn kids that are into it and you know i appreciate the parents that bring those kids along and i think that's why i still just i still absolutely love getting in my boat every day um it's been this is my 30th guide season wow Started with Roy, and then I worked for um, Jonathan up in Aspen for a few years, and then I went to uh, Taylor Creek in 1996. Mm-hmm. I've been there ever since. <clears throat> now, do you travel to fish elsewhere, like Silver Creek in Mon- in uh, Idaho, Sun Valley, Henry's Fork? Do you ever travel to go fish elsewhere? I have fished the West extensively. Um, we used to, I used to love going to the park, uh, Yellowstone Park in the fall. Just loved it. You know, the, the fish run up out of Hebgen Reservoir and they're just a lot of fun swinging soft tackles and nymphing a lot of it. And then um, all over Colorado, the Green River, fish that quite a bit. Um, and yeah, I fished quite a bit in Montana, Wyoming. And then uh, 25 years ago, maybe even longer, 28, 29 years ago, I started seeing all these people bone fishing and doing all this tropical stuff on the TV. And I'm like, man, I got to do that. I, I, I just, all of a sudden I just had to do that. And I didn't, you know, those trips are expensive. And a customer of mine one day was like, I'm building a bonefish lodge on Acklands Island in the Bahamas or on Andros Island. Sorry. I'm helping some guys build a bonefish lodge. Why don't you come down there? I'll give you two or three nights, and then maybe you can start bringing customers. And so you can, you know, maybe get fish for free, fish for free, and bring some customers. And so I went down there my first four days I ever bone fished at Andros Island. Well, I have to, I have to tell this story real quick. My first time I ever saltwater fly fished, I was in, uh, 
act, I was in uh, Grand Cayman. I was on Little Cayman with my first wife on a little trip. We all have to have a couple wives. Yeah. <laughs> I've got three. <laughs> and I knew, I knew there were bonefish there. I knew there were permit there and all this. So I, I, I go out and my very first day, I read, I read Randall Kaufman's book from, you know, cover to cover, Bonefish on a Fly. And, Very good book. And uh, one of the things he said, you know, watch the ceiling fan. Well, I stuck my ceiling, my rod in the ceiling fan the first five minutes I was there. And Broke the tip? No, it didn't break. Oh, no. So now I'm going, okay, I already screwed that up. So I go out the next morning. I've got a, a guide for half a day. And I'm just pumped. I'm like, this is going to be the greatest fishing day ever. I get down to the dock and the guide comes down there and he goes, I hate to tell you this, but I can't go. I'm the backup dive master and the dive master's sick and there's 20 people wanting to go diving and you're the half day guy. So you're yeah, out. I'm out. So, okay. Okay. I'll just go fishing on my own. So I just go walking around out in front of the place and I see these tails stick up I'm like, Oh, those look like those are some kind of fish. I'm not sure. I haven't seen these fish yet. First one I spook, it. boom, it's gone. 10 minutes later, tail sticking up, make a cast, catch the fish. It's about a seven or eight pound permit. My first saltwater fish. That's amazing. And this was before phones and, you know, you you have a regular camera back then. And Did you know what it was? I knew what it was when I went about halfway through the fight. I'm like, that's not a bonefish. That's a permit. I know that's a permit. Cool. And and I'm like, how am I going to, nobody's going to believe this. (laughs) <laughs> and and the owner of the lodge is walking down the beach. I'm like, hey, he goes, oh, what do you got? And I go, I got a permit. And so he went over to my room and got my camera. And so I've got to actually have a picture of this fish. Cool. And I was just done. You know, I was like, man, this is the coolest thing ever. The dive master comes back. We go catch a bonefish. And he goes, okay, we're going to the tarpon lagoon. And so now I'm here, I'm, I'm, I'm two fish into a, grand slam on my first day ever and we get in this tarpon lagoon and there's like 300 baby tarpon rolling all around us and they wouldn't eat a freaking thing like i threw at those things for two hours and yeah. now you're just probably so freaked out and i'm just and i'm like i don't even i don't really deserve a grand slam today you know and the next morning we went and caught one one of the babies so that was my first saltwater fishing expedition and then i just had this passion to do it again so I got this connection at Andros and uh, started going to this lodge. And the next year I had two straight weeks of customers down there, spent like 16 or 18 days in a row there. And I did over the course of the next 10 years, about 30 plus trips to the Bahamas with customers. Wow, right. And then I started expanding to uh, Mexico and, and just started to you network. You just got back from the Seychelles, right? Did Cosmolito Atoll in January. That was an amazing trip with a really great group of guys. How did um, you avoid be- not becoming a guide in the Keys? Like, there's so many great Keys guides. Mike, and, Mike Guerin. Suplee. Uh, Suplee, your good buddy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kevin Guerin. A lot of guys from the West are down there. And ever more so in the last few years. You know, I... I I started fishing with Chris Suplee in 97 in the Keys. And I just, I guess I just never really had the passion to live there, to want to live in Florida in, in that environment. I love the mountains so much. And I felt like I had this really amazing business in the mountains where I was guiding 
250 to 270 days a year. Right. Now to get uh, that kind of clientele in the Keys is going to be a lot harder to start over. Yeah. And and just, and, and to be honest with you, I didn't know that much. I guess I could have taught myself and learned the hard way. And I just, I don't ever, never had that passion to go guide in the salt. Right. But I just, I am such a junkie as far as fishing in the salt. I can't ever get enough of it. I can't wait for my next trip. No matter where it's at, I mean, I love all the fish. The tarpon's my favorite, of course. Right. Um, but I've become kind of a permit junkie because I have got to do that now in Mexico a bunch. Um, you know, the Seychelles. That What's your favorite of the three? The tarpon. Yeah, without a doubt. What is it about the tarpon that you like? I like that it's prehistoric. And I like the fact that I think every tarpon thinks it's 12 inches long, like in its brain. That's why it's so easy you know, to catch. That's why it's so agile. And no, it's, it's just why it's so, it's such a, you know, they're swimming around and they're 150 pounds or 120 pounds. And he doesn't know he's, you know, he's still, the sharks are after him. Right. So he might only think he's 12 inches long because he's pretty much scared of everything. I mean, you make the wrong move and they, they spook, right? You make the wrong cast, they spook. They, well, they just. I, I, I yeah, think. But what it's about permit? E- yeah, I was just going to say it's the easiest of all three. The well, hardest is probably a really big, you know, big bonefish, big yeah. twelve pound bonefish. That's the smartest. Yeah, they're the smartest. You can make a bad cast at a permit; it'll spin around and, and eat your fly. I guess I'm thinking about the Florida Keys fish, the, the tarpon, you know, that get so ridiculously hard out on the ocean side. The ocean side, yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just love all the fish. I love I love all the other fish too that are there. The, the you know, when I first started going to the Bahamas, man, the mutton snapper were all over the place, and they'd tail on the flats. And that's one of my favorite fish I've ever caught was a great big mutton snapper tailing on the flat. Um, that, yeah, that, that's a rare sight. Duck Camp makes outdoor goods so you can outdoor good. From the shallow water flats to the mallard-filled marshes. Duck Camp is there to make you feel comfortable and enhance the quality of your time in the elements. Not only do they make some of the best outdoor apparel on the market, but they support many of the organizations near and dear, fighting for a resource in the natural world. Check them out at duckcamp.com and tell them we sent you. Starting from a 90-year-old family recipe, Wickles are wickedly delicious pickles packed with garlic and peppers, a staple in our skiff and all shoreline lunches. Originating from Sim's grandmother's kitchen to a pantry near yours, from pickles, okra, relishes, and spreads, check them out to elevate all of your meals to the next level. Well, you just got back from Cosmolito. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you, what were you seeing there? What did you catch there? Uh, we were mostly focused on Trevally. Now, did you, were you on a mothership? No, there's a land-based lodge now on Cosmolito Atoll. Hmm. Um, wow. Stay in shipping containers that are decked out. And, really? Yeah, they're awesome. You can really cold air conditioning and hot showers and a shipping container. And So you're targeting big GTs. GTs, and uh, the guides are all amazing South African guides. They're so fun to be with, and they're so just over the top with their knowledge. And that giant Trevally is, you know, I've heard people say they're just a big jack. They're just a big jack, but they're not. They're so smart and they're so just 
unbelievably aggressive at times, but at other times they're so like, I'm not going to eat that fly. There's no way I'm going to eat that fly. Let me, uh, but, and I've been over there. Uh, I fished um, the Seychelles, never caused Melito. But the fishing's got to be extraordinary there because that's the only lodge there, land-based lodge. It's the, and it's only there for like maybe six months a year. Right. So those fish are not getting... They're not getting pushed. There's no, there's no pressure. You know, the, the pressure comes from the lodge. Right. And the fish are always there. Um, the tides are a big thing. Um, you know, we, we had a great week, and, but they have weeks where they catch twice as many as we did when we were there. Um, but I had a, I had about an 80 pounder eat a popper. What's that like? It's like a Volkswagen bug coming out of the water. You know, his whole eyeball came out of the water. The guide kept going, be ready, be ready. It's violent. It's violent. You know, and there was the violence. And I got like, the fly came out after about, you know, 20 yards of, of line. Can you tell what, if a fish is going to be an aggressive fish and that's going to bite? in any way by the, the body the, language of, of the GT. Yeah. You know, like they, if you have off color water, tarpon bite better, like a GT, I would think if you have wind, um, and if they're swimming aggressively, they might be on the bite. And if they're slow meandering down a, an edge, they might not be so aggressive. What, what, what do you see within a fish that might be an aggressive fish that, you know, it's going to bite your fly? Well, this is really my only experience with them you know targeting them but the guides were so experienced and so good at explaining things that the gt you know how a bonefish or a, a permit will follow a ray and feed behind a ray sure. a, a gt up to about 30 pounds will hide on the back of a ray like literally skin to skin and when that fish is on that ray if they see that fly he's eating it they're gonna they're gonna come after it mm. and you don't throw it at the fish this is like one of the most counterintuitive things. You know, you throw the fly at almost every other fish. You fl- They want it 20 feet on either side of them, and then you just start burning it. If you miss a strip, he's gone. That's interesting because like a tarpon, if you're feeding a tarpon with a worm fly, and you're doing the double-hand strip or a one-hand quick strip, and you miss one strip and the tarpon's right here, he's gone. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with a GT. They And they turn color like... They'll be like a gray color, and when they get lit up on your fly, they'll turn almost pure black. That's what I thought. And if they go off your fly, they just turn back to gray again. Hmm. Like a chameleon. Like a chameleon. And I saw it numerous times where your buddy or you'd miss a strip, and I mean that fish was coming on hot, and it was just see you later. Can you get him back? You can never get one back. That was the most interesting thing. It's like... He learned. He got educated. A redfish or a bonefish in the Bahamas. I've even seen guys hit a permit on the tail and spin around. Yeah. And not these things. Once they're gone, the guides all have this. They're like, oh, it's over. And I asked every one of the guides there, I said, have you ever seen one turn around on a Hail Mary and come eat a fly? And every one of them said, never. Not one time ever. Is it like a sarcastic thing? Like they make you look like a, or sound like a fool? Like what? It's over. It's just, yeah, it's game. It's, it's over. It's like, can you say it a little nicer? Yeah. Yeah. That's well, because it was no something. way you, you could say it's over nicely, you know, because you know you just blew it. It was probably something you did wrong. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you you if you get a big one, they get the boat up on plane and they try to go around the coral head so the thing doesn't get in the coral and it's quite the rodeo. Um, 
but that's it's a really really cool fish and then when they do eat your fly sometimes they're coming so fast that all of a sudden you, you don't even realize they ate your fly and they just keep going by the boat and your line's all slack and everything and all of a sudden Starts it goes zipping. tight yeah and the other thing i saw a trevally do that i've never seen a fish do is i threw it one off a ray he tracked the fly in the air okay under the fly as soon as it hit and met it at the water it's and like throwing it. a pilchard at Robbie's. Yeah. Right, exactly. You know, but you know what? Exactly. It, but you know what's, what I've seen? There are great videos of big GTs eating birds, comorants and stuff. Oh, yeah. The, in so the, maybe this fish is thinking it's a small bird coming in. Just, I mean, just. I mean, they have to think it's 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 a bird or something. Their awareness. It's got to be just, a bird. It's. I don't know it's what it was. but something in the air that's going to land in the water, and they're going to crush it. Well, know. what else in nature is going to fly just above the water that, they get, that they're going to want to eat? Yeah. That's, yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I, so, before, do you have anything else to say to that, Cosmolito? Because I want to... No, man. It was just... It's an amazing place. Yeah. We caught... Probably the coolest fish I caught the whole trip was a 15-pound African marbled grouper on a popper. I have no idea what that even is. It's just a big, great big grouper with big teeth and blue eyes. And, you know, the 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 film roll we have from that place of all the different crazy fish we caught is, is pretty amazing. I would say that there are three places I'd like to fish again. The Golden Dorado in Peru. In Bolivia. Bolivia. Catching a striped marlin in Mags Bay off of the bait balls. And, and possibly Cosmolito because you can't get there. Yeah. Because Alphonse has got to be crowded, a little bit fished out possibly. I mean, they started that camp a long time ago. I was there in the early years, mm -hmm. and we saw that. But Cosmolito is, is like in the middle of nowhere. And I've heard of motherships going there in the past, but I didn't know they had a land-based lodge. Yeah, they finally got permission to put one in. It's I believe the shipping containers and stuff is because it has to be removable. I oh, think right. there's some kind of rule, mm -hmm. law or something, but... It was a fantastic or trip. sinkable or nothing yeah. <laughs> so, on dry gland. Wouldn't want to be there in a typhoon. So, so I want to bring it back locally because I think you're okay. a great spokesperson yep. for the Roaring Fork River and the in the uh, Frying Pan River. We were speaking. We were in the Square Grouper and the Keys. You just got back from a great day of tarpon fishing. We and I'm I love to pick your brain about the 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 frying pan because I fish there often. Um, and you were talking about. I asked you why are there not so many great big rainbow trout on the flats and below the bend pool and you know as in different spots as there once was and you said something about the micey shrimp you 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 made mention of the fact that it might be because of the micey shrimp there's a lack of them getting pushed out from rudai reservoir and it may be because of the kokanee salmon eating them and then you called me or i called you yesterday and you said that a biologist went up there to do a scan yeah did you ever hear back from the results of that scan um, no, this is actually something that just happened yesterday. Like they, um, so let's reel it back a little bit. Um, I think two things, my, my personal observations over the years is the water flows have changed dramatically. We used to have a lot more water on a consistent basis, like in the river, in the river, you know, in the winter we would have flows 120, 130 CFS. Now we have 40 and 50 CFS. Um, it seems like when those flows started to go so dramatically up and down that we started to see less shrimp in the river. It's interesting because regardless of the river flowing, 
the dam is still full. Mm -hmm. So how, why would that affect the mycy shrimp, the amount of water coming out of the dam? Well, I don't really know, and there's really no answer from anyone why they aren't coming out as much. They still come out. There's proof that they still come out. The USGS does fish surveys below the dam, right at the toilet bowl, and they are still finding the mysa shrimp in the stomach of shrimp of fish. And then uh, they were going to do a sonar. They, they actually do a, a mysa study. I had no idea with sonar from boats. And they were actually doing that yesterday on Rudai Reservoir. So I wonder what the sonar would show. Just a layer of it'll probably be a cloud. A cloud. I yeah. guess they they're they're pretty. They stay in big clouds and stuff. Um, and the other thing that you know the the theory is that you know maybe they move. You know maybe they have to be right at the takeout of the water for them to come out to of get the, flushed to yeah. get flushed out. I remember in their, like late nineties, early two thousands, there would be so many mices in the river that you couldn't catch a fish because they were like full of They're stuffed stuff full. They wouldn't eat another one. And then the perfect the perfect flow, like I remember this in the early two thousands because I filmed a TV show up there. Um we were fishing, I would tie this big mice shrimp with a little hackle on it and fish it dry. And because when the mice come into the river, they no longer can survive. They can't survive the current. So they almost immediately die. And they turn this like opaque white color where when they're in the reservoir and they first come out, they're very clear. Hmm. They actually look like a little saltwater shrimp. They look like a tiny little shrimp. They don't taste good though. I've actually tried a couple. Um, but we used to fish those dry and right under the surface and sight fish to fish that were and they'd come up and boil on those things. Wow. And it was, and that would be in the flat just below the, the flats uh, and the bend pool. And then if you had a really good flow, when those were coming out like that, you'd find the mices all the way down to the bridge pool and, and beyond. Mm -hmm. And you could see them in the water. There were so many mices. You could see them in the water. Yeah. Really? And also where you could see them is they, since they perish after they get into the river, you could see them stuck on the rocks and stuck on the, the moss and stuff there. Um, I think one of the reasons there's not as many big rainbows is there just aren't as many rainbows. And I'm not sure why that is. Um, I think it has something to do with the flows. What about the brown trout? The brown trout population, um, it's, I would say the frying pan is. Does it have too, too many brown trout? 80 plus percent brown trout. And according to our local biologist, um, it has way too many brown trout. That's what I thought. She feels, they're eating all the bait fish? They're eating. The roe? They're just eating so much. They're eating all the food. And the way I've had it explained is when there's too many small fish, it's hard for one fish to get bigger, if that makes sure. sense. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And there's too many fish of a certain size. Like if you go up there, you see it, Nikki. There's a million eight to 12 inch brown trout, mm -hmm. where 20 years ago, the average fish size up there was, you know, there were 16 and 18 and 20 inch fish all over the place up there. Right. Now, was there was there that much algae on the river, or does that have to do with higher water temps, lower water? Well, up there, the the water temp doesn't change. You know, it's yeah, because it's coming out of the bottom of the dam. It's around that forty one, forty two degree mark all all the time, summer, winter, even for thirty years. 
Yep. Yeah, because the water's always coming from the right. bottom. From the same spot. So where's Why? that algae coming from? So the algae is growing in the river. And then there is also an invasive species of algae on the river called Didymo. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It was probably transported on someone's wading boots from, I know they have a problem with out east, like in the, the limestone streams and stuff out there. Um, and so that was kind of an imported invasive um, thing that's happened to the frying pan. And how long ago did that happen? Man, I I would guess we started seeing that as long as maybe eight years ago, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but it's a concern. It affects the microinvertebrates that are in the river. And you can see that, you know, that slime layer that's on the rocks up oh, there. Yeah. That never used to be there. Yeah, that's, yeah. And the other thing that we haven't had in a few years is we haven't had that seven to 900 CFS for four or five weeks up there to flush it out, to flush it out because the water situation is trying to fill root eye. And then we have our situation where, you know, the front range takes a ton of water from the top of root eye and the, and the roaring fork right on independence pass to fill up twin lakes. And then there's a tunnel diversion that, that diverts water from the frying pan. And so, that's Basic, called the frying pan Arkansas project, right? It goes correct. over the Arkansas River. Yeah. And, and you know, they, so what they do now is they basically match the outflow with the inflow. And that, so they can get the lake to capacity. Hmm. Um, where in the past, you know, when they weren't taking all that water, we'd have, you know, seven, 800 CFS on the frying pan for weeks at a time. We're up there fishing in the flats up right. to our waist, freezing our nads off, you know. And the fish would, so many fish would come up in the flats. Oh, I'm sure. just feed like crazy right. on the. So why why do they fluctuate the water so much? It's it's all about. Agricultural down. down irrigation water. Yeah. You know, every ounce of that water is owned by somebody. Um, one of the things, the other things that's has been kind of alarming in the last few years is is the anchor ice situation, which is where the bottom of the river actually freezes. Their ice adheres to the rocks on the bottom of the river. And when they're at a seriously low flow, that increases. Increases. And then, you know, I know you guys have probably seen the ice dams on the Roaring Fork and the videos of when they give loose and go down. Well, the lower part of the frying pan is in the dark zone down there. You know, there's no sun for two or three months down there and it just gets this serious anchor ice and the low flows do not allow, you know, it, it just builds up and builds up and builds up. And in the last couple of years, um, the Roaring Fork Conservancy has headed a project to actually purchase more water from root eye, um, to, to up the flows in the winter to help with the anchor ice problem. Where does that money go to? I know we get a lot of our electricity from from that dam. The Aspen uh, town of Aspen gets that electricity. Um, the, I, I can't answer where that water is purchased from. I can't from. imagine how you raise the money to buy water from Rudai Reservoir. It's, it's got to be really expensive. It's a couple hundred. It's more. It's it's a couple hundred thousand dollars. I mean, it's a lot of money to try to buy this mm. water. Well, I think that might be a good time to jump in. You're the president of the Guys Alliance, correct? Yep. Yep. We have a. Um, in 2014, is that right? Yeah. 
yeah, in 2014, we formed a, you know, a group of us got together after a uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife presentation on the state of the fisheries. And, you know, there were some kind of alarming things that came up there. And I was talking to one of the head game wardens. What in particular that, that raised that red flag for you? Um, I, I don't think there was just, I really can't remember just one thing. I just remember there being, you know, topics about use of the river and, you know, the, the water situation, um, uh, co- coming out of root eye. And then there was some, you know, some guides brought up, you know, how we got so many more river users on the lower river. Should we try to, you know, decrease that should we try to you know try to protect it somehow and there was just all these questions that came up and one of the game wardens who was one of our head game wardens for 40 years he goes you know he's just like you guys should maybe form a form some kind of group you know and uh i said you know i looked at a couple of my buddies i said let's let's get together and talk about putting together an association for guides, not just for guides, but for anglers as well. Right. It's just like in the Keys, the Lower Keys Guides Association, mm-hmm. the Florida Keys Guides Association. It's very similar to what you're doing, right? Very similar. Yeah. We're hopefully we're building towards being a a much bigger group. Like look, those guys have done a fantastic job down there. Um, Do you so, have a mission statement? Yeah. Um, our mission statement is um, professional guides, uh, dedicated to the conservation and protection of the Roaring Fork region fisheries. Um, we, it was a lot longer than that when we first started and we kind of chopped it up a little bit, but we're just trying to, um, we thought if we get a group together, then we'll have a voice. Like it won't just be me and Nikki going down and bitching about something in front of the wildlife commission or the county commissioners or somebody. It'll be, we can represent 60, 80, a hundred guys. And so there were seven of us that got together. We formed a board. Um, uh, you know, the word association was tossed around. I'm like, why don't we name it something a little different, you know? And so we call it the Roaring Fork Fishing Guide Alliance. Um, kind of a nice word to kind of bring people together. Right. And so we got a, uh, you know, a, we made it easy for guides to join give us 20 bucks a year and he can join as an associate member 25 bucks a year and then we asked outfitters maybe to give us like 250 dollars a year so we could start a coffer so we could sure. start getting a little bit of money together and um then we started to identify some things that needed done some projects in the valley and our very first project was um we identified that the carbondale boat ramp um, you're familiar with that, sure. um, is one of the busiest portals in the entire state. And it was in, on weekends and busy days, it was in a state of chaos is probably a good way to put yeah. it. Um, so we're like, so what can we do to help not just the guides, but the anglers and the, and the boaters and the people that the river users. So we decided let's put some signs up down there and everybody hates signs and everybody hates to oversign everything. So we came up with a, a staging system with signs, you know, please don't spend more than five minutes on the boat ramp. Please try to have your boat ready. And we found that it, it worked pretty well. 
you know, it, it started to work pretty well. It was, it was great. It was like, oh, that's, you know. Have you ever missed cool. your, uh, the takeout? I have not. No. I can not imagine, like, missing your takeout. You're like, you're, like you, you're just learning how to row, and dad's in the front of the bow, and we're watching the, the, the takeout go by as we're trying to scramble, you know, to the shore. I've heard stories, but I have not but you personally. Flipped, but you flipped a ref. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't want to talk about that. <laughs> we get to that. Um, anyway, the the alliance is done. We've done some other things. Um, we have another boat ramp uh, at the Iron Bridge, the West Bank boat ramp that, after runoff, has some really really bad problems with giant jagged rocks sticking up. And Colorado Parks and Wildlife is currently working on a plan to uh, completely remodel that. But you know, they government agencies have their you know, they have their time frames and their budgets and stuff. So we we decided let's get permission from CPW to let's buy some gravel, man, and put it down there yeah. and, and clean it up and make everybody's lives easier. So, you know, we put last year and this year, we put like 40 tons of road base on that and smoothed it out and saved everybody time and equipment problems. And, and so we've done that a couple years in a row. Um, we've worked with Colorado Parks and Wildlife on the signage for um, the spawning closures that we have on three or four of the creeks. Um, two creeks, three creeks on the Colorado and two creeks on the uh, Roaring Fork. We just make sure the signs are up. We actually redesign the signs so they're a little more simple. Um, and then, as you're familiar, the last four years, we had some warm water issues. Um, on the Roaring Fork in the Colorado, where the water got too warm in the afternoons to, you know, to to fish, to fish, and and to you know to so the fish are the fish are in peril, yeah, at seventy degree water, and so there were volunteer closures put in place. We made all the signs for that. We did all the installation of the signs. Um, did that work? Did people stay off the river? I thought the voluntary uh, compliance was really good. It was, and what was it? It wasn't. Was it noon and after, or two and after? I think we had the first two years. It was two o'clock, and then that third year, it was bad. It was like we did a one p.m. Yeah, um, voluntary off the water closure, and for the most part, <laughs> I can know. You, th- can you see the temperature of the water change that drastically from eight in the morning to one in the afternoon? If if we have the right flows and the temperatures, and so it, it there's there's a few factors involved. There's the flow of the river, the nighttime temperatures, and the daytime temperatures. And our rivers get their hottest at about five or six o'clock in the evening. And that's when a lot of people like to go out and fish. Sure. Yeah. But that's when the fish are in the most peril. Right. What's the difference in temperature from, say, hypothetically, eight in the morning to five at night on a, on a river that's got, you know, that amount of water, you know, going down. It can be as dramatic as 15 degrees. Wow. I was going to say 10 degrees, yeah. 10 Holy degrees is the average. Cow. And like if you go out right now um, on, a, on a, you know, a day, it gets down to 50 at night, 45 at night. The water temperature in the morning's 50, 52, 53. And it's 60, 61 by the time you get off. But that's yeah. perfect. That's perfect. Trout water. Yeah. That's but, a perfect time to go skinny dipping. Nobody's on the <laughs> river. Nobody's going to see you. What's your, uh, let's just say, let's just forecast the rivers in the West in 10, 15, 20 years. 
do you guys look that far ahead and try to try to forecast future issues that may be cause for concern? The number of boats going down the river, the number of people fishing, the pressure on the fishery. Do you ever see doing something where we have to limit the amount of people? I'm just throwing this out there. No, and, and it's been talked about a lot. We've talked about it. We've actually had meetings with um, regional, our regional, um, you know, game managers. Um, and how would you monitor that? Well, you could monitor the guides, I guess, pretty easily. Yeah. You can monitor at the boat ramps. You could probably never monitor the public. The public. Yeah. And you could probably never close it to the public. Mm -hmm. um, there are models around the West where there are permit systems and there are places where, like, there's only so many launches. Like the Gunnison Gorge, you have to have a permit to launch down there. The um, Black Canyon? Yeah, the Black yeah. Canyon. But but the public can walk down there and fish. I'm not sure if the public can actually launch down there. I don't know the answer to that. But like the Smith River in Montana, that's a very strict, you know, you have to apply for your, and then the public can't be in there. There's no way to get in there because um, there's it's, no access to it. It's a canyon? It. It's a big canyon. Okay. Yeah. And then, you know, we've we've talked about that extensively. We were like, um, it would be probably good for the health of the river to somehow um, – limit the amount of guide boats at some point. Um, I don't know if that ever happens. I know that's a huge political hurdle. Um, I think it's a similar issue with even boats on the ocean. Mm -hmm. You know, the pressure on the ocean, the number of guides, the number of boats, the public. Uh, it's just the same issue everywhere, you know. There's a lot of people that like to go fishing. Well, and and and... You know, everybody has the right to use that beautiful river, you know? Right. And it's, I mean, we live in a magical place, really. And it's gotten a lot more crowded. There's a lot more river usage as well, not just fishing guides and fishermen, but the paddleboard and the, the tubers and the kayakers and the and the pleasure rafters. And they have every right to be out there as, as anyone else. Um, so as the president of the Guides Alliance, uh, what's your biggest concern? That's one of my biggest concerns is, is going forward is the amount of guides that are using the river. And I don't think there's much we can do about it, but I think what I'd like to see is everybody step up with the etiquette a little bit. Like, Let's really treat these fish, um, you know, like the awesome little things that they are, these creatures that mm -hmm. we, you know, we go out there, we catch them, we release them. I want to think that most guides and anglers are taking good care of the fish. Um, you know, I think um, going forward, more education would be good as far as how to properly release a fish, you know. Right. fighting the fish, making sure people are using barbless hooks. Um, you know, it's more, it's going to be more of a grassroots thing than it is going to be a, right. A rule. Oh yeah. I was going to ask you about the catch, the, the, the handling of a trout, because I know bonefish tarpon trust released an article with Hurstead and, and, uh, Doug Kilpatrick along with Ross from BTT talking about how to properly handle a bonefish, especially when the water temperatures are hot. So when you're, when you're rowing down the river, 
what's what's walk me through you net the fish if the client wants to take a photo you have the phone ready with the fish in the water get the net out he takes a photo of the fish put it back in the net and then you release them or do you wait for a certain spot to release them how, how does that go I'm, I'm i'm one of the most anal guys on the river as far as treating the fish properly um i have a little tool called a no touchy it's just a dowel rod with a little piece of wire hook at the end. And I know there's similar ones for saltwater fishing. I mean, there's even great big ones for offshore fishing and stuff right. where you just can just pull like the a, hook just out. Just a de-hooker. Just yeah. a little de-hooker. Yeah. So you never touch the fish. I net the fish. I I have gone days and days and days without ever touching a fish. And I just run that thing down. The, it's, it's so fast. I can do it. I can put the oars under my legs, get it off. And I like to release the fish out of my net. I what if the client wants a photo? I usually pull the boat over, say, okay, we need to do this the right way. I will have either, if I need to pull on the oars, I'll just have them, I'll say, here's the net, keep the fish underwater until I get over here. Once I get over here, I explain to them if they don't already know to wet their hands. I try to explain to them about the membrane on the fish, you know, which is actually a living cell, you know, that protects that fish. And then try to get people to scoop the fish. I I train them to both hands on the same side of the fish and just lift it. Don't grab it. Yeah, don't, don't squeeze it. it. Just, they won't, they won't flop around and stuff as much if you treat them right, you know, and just try to get a fish and then back in the net. I tell them to drop it back in the net. And I always hold the net. Like I got a safety net right there. So when it goes flying out of their hands towards the bottom of the boat, I can snatch it before it actually <laughs> cracks its head on the bottom of the boat. And then I take the fish and most fish are fine especially when the water's cold. If the water's really cold and oxygenated like it is this year, most of the fish just zip right off. But I like them to swim out of the net. I think it's better for them. You know, I see guys pitching them in the air and tossing them and not treating them very well. Right. That, um, I'd like to see more of that education mm -hmm. and just etiquette on, you know, don't drop your hook in the middle of the river, you know, row over you're to talking the, about your anchor your anchor so, yeah. yeah go over to the edge and get out of the way and and just just have a little bit more awareness for the people around you right but you said something just a second ago the slime on a fish is a living membrane mm -hmm. tell me about that it's 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 their protective coating i know that but it's a living membrane yeah it's see. it's a it's a it's a living cell and so um somebody long ago said you know, when you grab them with dry hands, you're punching holes in them. You know, you're, you're, you're punching holes in that membrane and fish can be overhandled. You know, they can get, they can get a, they get know, disease after that. Yeah. They can get a fungus on them. I, yeah. I, the, the, the name of it is slipping me right now, but yeah, I mean, and you used to really see a lot of them on the frying pan, the big rainbows and stuff, because, you know, guys want, they oh, want yes. pictures of those big fish and they get overhandled. Right. Um, and then, unfortunately, I've probably seen more uh, mortality in the river this year than ever before. And I call those uh, mishandled. I fish. call them Instagram fish. Yeah, 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 for sure. How, how has your fishery changed in the Roaring Fork River over the years with how you how you fish for them? You know, um, it's interesting. Um, the 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 guy that hired me at Taylor Creek, Tim Hang. I'm sure you guys all know yeah. him. He's we he's he's the 
he's the he's the godfather of he's the commissioner he's he's our man yeah he's he uh, gave me my guide job at taylor creek and has been an incredible mentor to me um and he started roaring fork anglers in 1981 and he said there were three or four boats in the valley you know there was really and he said but he's told me that the fishing wasn't near as good back then and there were a lot of mines and stuff up the mar up up by marble and up by redstone right. that were putting some nasty water in the river and and they also weren't managing the fishery as, as well i know when i first started fishing the roaring fork it was absolutely amazing and my first I don't know, 15 years of floating, the, the river was just absolutely, it was just incredible. You know, the size of the fish, the numbers of fish, um, and they were easier to catch. You know, they were, I mean, back in the day, right after, especially right after runoff and stuff, you put a couple big prince nymphs on there, or, you know, you could throw great big dry flies and hoppers. And I mean, the fish were just easier to catch. To answer your question, they've gotten a little trickier, and that's a lot, I think, to do with pressure. So are you downsizing, or how are you changing your tactics? Downsizing, um, just doing different rigs, you know, playing with it. Uh, You're a streamer guy, though, aren't you, for the most part? Oh, I love to streamer fish, yeah. and Well, that's changed, too, because the fish used to really, really, on certain days, just really crush the streamer and, you know, you could have just incredible streamer days. And now I believe there's so many people throwing streamers that the fish, you still get days where you get a lot of, a lot of chasers and a lot of fish chasing it around, but you don't have that like full commitment, you know, open, open wide and right. eat the fly. Um, you still get some of it, but it's just, I think that's all has to do with the pressure. How do you feel about um, people fishing eggs and peg, pegged eggs? Um, do you have a problem with that? I don't really have a problem with it because eggs are a food source in the river and you, you are know, matching a hatch. You're, you're matching a food source. Yeah. And I and, just saw trout unlimited. Did you see that article trout unlimited mm-hmm. posted? It said something about how pegged eggs fishing with that method is more, um, friendlier on the fish. Cause you don't get that, you know, he, he they related it to, if you if you fish a big streamer, sometimes that streamer gets stuck in the right. back of the mouth, right, or in the gills or something. Every time that pegged egg is right here in the side, right on the edge, right. Yep. And how much harm is that doing? It's it. You know that started in Alaska, right? The pegged egg because they're still doing it up there. Well, they. I think it's the law. It's, di- it's different. Is it the law? Yeah, you can't have an egg tied on a hook because the, you know the fish in Alaska they eat eggs for a living for sure, and they suck it in. It goes yeah. deep. Yeah, that's what we were doing when we were up there two, three weeks ago. Uh, the eggs about that far above the hook. Yeah, I think they actually have a. I think they actually have a rule of one or two inches or something. They yeah. actually have a, a rule up there. And the first time I ever went to Alaska, I saw them doing that. And I'm like, hmm, that that might that might work back home if we could find the the eggs. And so it evolved, and now guys do it a lot. And um, you know, it's a viable food source in the river and, and the same with worms, you know, a lot of guys poo poo the San Juan worm as it's called, or we have a version of a worm we use that we actually peg the worm. Um, we just tie overhand knot with the worm about an inch above the hook and, um, it works great, but 
especially after we had those rains two weeks ago, you know, the worm fly wasn't really in play, but after the rain and after some mud goes down the river, all of a sudden the fish... Want to eat worms. They want to eat worms. It's a worm hatch. It's a little DNA going on there. I, I got another question for you. Why from Aspen to Basalt? I mean, sure, you can catch a fish on a hopper, but when you're walking the bank, there are hoppers everywhere, and they don't eat a hopper very well. You're right. Why, I, why is that? It's a bit of a mystery to me forever. I mean, I've had some great hopper fishing over the years, but not a ton of it. And so the hoppers don't eat the willows. The hoppers, they eat grass and things like grass. And our rivers just don't have a lot of grass. You know how in Montana, when you're on those spring creeks and some of those rivers, there's just giant tall grass all along the banks. I think that's maybe why they have better hopper fishing. Well, I would think that if a fish in the in the fork, we don't have a lot of hoppers. They see one, they'd be they would garbage it. You would because, think, wow, so. there's that piece of, there's a stake there. Yeah. Is, but even you know. when you're walking down to the fishing hole, you're going to spook hoppers Hopper, all throughout are. the trail. And then when you get down there and throw the, there's just, they don't eat them. And maybe it's because every time they eat a hopper, they get caught. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and like on the Roaring Fork this year, you can hear hoppers all over the bank. We've had some down hopper years because in a dry summer, you don't have as many as you have when you have a wet spring for, I don't know the reason for that, but it's, it's definitely consistent. Um, but there's a lot of hoppers and, you know, I've had this summer, I've had days where I, I fish a hopper dropper a lot. That's a rig I like to use. And I've had days where I've had 15, 20 fish eat the hopper. And I've had the very next day, two fish come up and eat it. Interesting. On a cold winter, snowy day, can we find you up there midge fishing? Yeah. I love this. Some of my favorite fishing. I know. I love, I love cold snowy days and you know the big fish like snowy days i'm not sure why i think just fish dark. in general I, harry spear once told me this fish like low pressure they don't like the big sun on a high pressure for some reason maybe in the water column they come up they get higher in the water mm -hmm. maybe even trout too that low pressure day i don't know what happens inside that water but fish get happier i see it on the ocean i see it you know, out here in Colorado. Well, they definitely like the cloud cover, mm -hmm. especially trout in the clear water. Bugs like cloud cover bugs, too. Bugs like it too. Yeah. You know, I, and I think the fish in the salt water really like it too, but we just don't like it because we can't see as well. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it raining. I've been, I had one of my greatest bonefish days ever in the Bahamas in a light drizzle. These fish were tailing as far as you could see and they weren't spooky. It was it was dead calm, and it was drizzling rain. And it was just, we were just picking them off one after another on a, with seven weights. It was epic. The big you know? bonefish in Isla Mirada, you get a cloudy, windy day, that's when you used to catch them. You get a calm, high, sunny day, you won't even see one. It's just funny, because yeah. whatever conditions there are, anglers are cursing whether it's cloudy right. we're cursing the clouds it's too sunny we're there's a lot of hope involved not, in fishing there's no wind we want wind there's too much wind we i know it's just nuts well on our, our trip to cosmolito the first day of the trip it was dead glass calm okay the, the camp manager's been there for six years he's like this is the fourth day i've seen like this ever here it with the fishing was just that you could tell the fish were just like what's going on here 
Yeah, know, they're scared. They're there's we caught some fish, but it was just they were on edge. You could tell that they were just it was just a different environment for them, you know. And then they get a little happier. And, and I mean, look at the tarpon in the keys when it's last calm. That can, they can be pretty 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 tough, pricks. man. They can on be those pricks. days, yep. it was hard this year because we had too good weather. The whole year it was calm, so crystal clear water. I've never seen it in forty years like such perfect weather. Awesome. You catch them, but it, it was hard. Where would so, you like to? How would you like to end this conversation? What's the question that you've never been asked that you'd like to have asked you right now? Oh man! If you could fish one day, if you had one day left to fish, who would you want? Who would you want to fish with? With who would you want to fish with, and where would you be? Maybe Chris Supley tarpon fishing. That's probably and catching that one seventy six you caught with him before. Catch yeah, that same fish again. Yeah, that's that's probably right there. I couldn't think of a better ending. Is that your best day of fishing ever? Oh man, that's a that's a tough one. Uh, that was uh, yeah, that was a pinnacle moment. My biggest tarpon. Um, you know, I forty one inches by eighty one inches long. Eighty four by eighty four. Yeah, eighty one was yours. That's yeah. a big. That's a big toad. That's a big toad, and it was with the guy that taught me how to tarpon fish. I fished with him for twenty five years. In the Chris Supley was really a great fisherman. Unbelievable. Yep. Yeah, taught me, taught me so much. I mean, and and just he knew a lot about those fish, man. Those guys and the, those guys are a different breed. Yeah, I and, mean, he won uh, permit tournaments. He won tarpon tournaments. He's a you know, when you start winning guy. those kind of tournaments. Um, that says a lot about your ability as yep. a guide. And then um, I want to thank you guys for what you're doing oh, thank, with thank this you. podcast. I mean, you guys are documenting some of the most, you, you know, the legendary people of this sport that we love so much. Um, you know, I, I, I've listened to most of your podcasts and you guys are just totally on with the questions and the people that have been on this thing. I mean, I, I feel honored to be on it. I mean, you guys have had, you're like, one of the bros, man. You, you guys have had the legends of this sport yeah. and, and well, you're one of them. You're the legend of the Roaring Fork <laughs> you're, Valley. You're Kyle. one of them, well, man. I appreciate that. And, um, I guess getting on a boat with you two would be pretty special too. Well, let's make it happen. That's not yeah. happening. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe me and Nikki yeah. could go out. Yeah, <laughs> screw you. Kyle and I will go out. Just messing with it. Anyway, Kyle, Kyle thank you so thank much. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me yeah, to your beautiful sure. home. Yeah, Thanks thank so much. you. Love you, man. Thanks. Thank you, you too, buddy. There's nothing better than fishing with a guide that wants you to catch a fish more than you do and has all the tools to make it happen. That's Kyle Holt. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.